in a world where jobs are how most people make money. One man, one desire, one challenge dares to break the mold. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where we don't work for money. Money works for us. Coming soon. Viewer discretion advised. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network, where cash flow is king. Real estate investing, the means, so you can enjoy your retirement dreams. This is the show where we cut right to the chase. No sales pitch, no long monologues, just simple how-to real estate investing advice, so you can earn the passive income you need to enjoy your retirement today. And now, your host and chief old dog, Bill Manassero. Welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. I'm your host, Bill Manassero, and this is the show where 50-plusers and anyone else who wants to join us get solid, no-sales-pitch real estate investing advice to help generate real cash flow. This podcast airs twice weekly on Mondays and Fridays, and if you aren't already a subscriber, go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, type in Old Dogs, spelled D-A-W-G-S, find our podcast, and subscribe. Well, we have a great guest uh, today. Uh, this gentleman has uh, uh, not only got a, a great handle on real estate and lending associated with real estate, but uh, also served in the U.S. Army for four years. And uh, we always love to have vets on the show and, and uh, uh, see uh, you know, how they've kind of leveraged that uh, into uh, various elements of real estate investing. And I'm uh, talking about Kevin Amosh and uh, Kevin is a successful hard money lender and mortgage fund manager, and it sounds like he's also a real estate investor as well. So after four years in the U.S. Army, he got his finance degree and started his first real estate investment company, which is still active today. Founder of Pine Financial Group, Inc., and the author of The 45-Day Investor, he has completed well over 2,200 successful transactions. He is a recognized investment expert, a frequent speaker, and has been quoted in the Las Vegas Review Journal, the Denver Post, the Denver Business Journal, Yahoo! Who real estate, Forbes, and many more. Well, Kevin, welcome to the Old Dogs REI Network. Oh, Bill, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much, and thank you for all the listeners uh, spend this time with us. Uh, well, uh, I'm I'm stoked. Uh, this is a great, uh, great topic area, and uh, I'm uh, I'm dying to hear uh, your story. So, if you wouldn't mind, kind of giving us a little background, uh, I'd love to hear hear about your background. Yeah, for sure. You did a great job with that bio. Um, you mentioned I was in the Army for four years. It's interesting. I go all the way back to high school. Here I am, this 18-year-old kid. And you know what, Bill? I was so sick of school. I did not want one more second in a classroom. So I got sold on the idea of laser tag. I mean, are you kidding me? I can go into the Army and <laughs> play laser tag for a living. So I was sold. I signed up, and there I was. So I... I went into the army as uh, infantryman, ended up um, doing three years active, one year in the National Guard. And while I was in the active duty, 
I was spending a ton of time in the field. I was living in the barracks. I was eating at the mess hall. I didn't have expenses. So I had a little savings account going. I was like, what do I do with this money? I want to invest it somewhere, not in a savings account. So I started reading books. And I'm sure a lot of your guests have the same book recommendations, but it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad that really pulled me in. Yep, same here. And I, I was like, real estate's got to be it. This is just feels so right. So I bought my first house. I was 21 years old, still in the Army. Um, when I got out of the Army, I moved into that house, moved a roommate in with me to pay my bills. And then I started um, going to school. But I still wanted to do real estate. And I was in the National Guard at the time. And I had the GI Bill. So I had the GI Bill paying for school and my living expenses. I had the National Guard helping with school. I didn't need any student loans. But you know what I did? I, I took out student loans. And, and I did that so I could buy my, use that as a down payment to buy my second house. I kept that first house as a rental property and I watched the cash flow and I watched the appreciation. I was getting those tax benefits we learn about. And I absolutely fell in love with the business. And I knew then this was gonna be the product, the commodity, whatever you wanna call it, that was gonna make me rich. And so I, I focused in on it and I started buying one or two houses every single month while I was going to school and I was working at night. Um, it was it was a tough go, but it, it was all worth it. Now, how were you uh, able to buy one or two houses every, every month, you said? <laughs> yep, no cash. I was broke. Uh, I didn't have good credit. I mean, I had I didn't have good credit. I didn't have bad credit either. I had no credit. I was I was 21 years old. Um, but it's all about how you structure the deals with the sellers and and I think we're going to talk more about some of my mistakes and things. I, I think you mentioned that you wanted me to discuss that, but um, I could tell you that when you in this. That's great. That is, uh, yeah, that, that is uh, how a lot of people have, have started that, uh, you know, have went on to build, you know, quite a, uh, quite a, a, a real estate portfolio and some of them, you know, <laughs> it looks like an empire more than a portfolio, but uh, um that uh, we definitely want to hear about that as well. I mean, because there's a lot of people that are thinking, well, you know, I've got to save up all this money and um, before I can buy my first place. And then after that, I have to wait and save up again for a, the second place. But it sounds like you found a way to do it. Uh, uh, wow. And really quick. I mean, two houses a month. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it was, uh, it, was, it was hard work. I mean, I had to find the right sellers that were in the right situation that I could help them. So I was pounding the phones. Between my classes in college, I was walking across campus making phone calls to try to find these sellers that were in the, you know, the correct situation for me to, to help them. Now, um, what year was this that you bought your first properties? I was in 2001, so it was right during the dot-com crash and mm -hmm. leading up to 9-11. So very interesting timing that I got into that. I started Pine Financial, which we'll talk more about in a little bit too, I think, but started that in 2008. So I'm definitely starting these companies right during the you know major recessions. Wow. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah. Keep going here. I, I want to, you know, want to hear how you, you know, kind of evolved with it. Um, and you're buying two a month. So I would imagine you had quite a portfolio at the end of a year here. Yeah, it was, it was one to two a month, um, averaging just over one a month. Uh, and I can tell you how I got started with that strategy. The strategy is the lease option. That's what really got me going. Mm, okay. Uh, but I was going to the seminars and I was going to, um, you know, the classes and anything I could provide. And back then it wasn't as easy to find the information as it is today. 
Um, but the seminars were all saying, let's go, let's do the foreclosure thing. Let's invest in foreclosures. And during this time, there was um, a lot of people that didn't have equity in their homes. So the gurus would teach you, well, we'll go negotiate with the, uh, the lien holder or the lender for what we call a short sale. What, pay them less than what's owed on the property for them to release the lien. That way you could negotiate equity into a deal. And so I thought this was going to be how I was successful, Bill. And I, I really focused in on this short sale thing. And I was knocking on foreclosure doors and meeting with people and talking to them. And I finally found somebody. And the problem is he said he will let me negotiate the short sale and sell me his house. But um, I had to give him $3,000 to do it. I had a mentor at the time tell me, get control of the house. Go ahead and have him deed it to you. Don't use a contract. Just have him quit claim it over to you. So I gave the guy three grand and... I didn't have three grand, so I borrowed some of that from a friend. Um, and I went to negotiate the short sale, and I, I, I followed the instructions exactly like the book says. It's supposed to be so easy. Uh, the, the bank said no. <laughs> the bank said no, we're not going to accept your offer. So there we go. He, they ended up foreclosing anyway. Um, the, the seller lost his house. I lost my $3,000, and I decided that maybe foreclosures wasn't uh, the avenue for me to, to go down. And so I... I started reading more books and I read one from Peter Conti. Um, man, I have a ton of respect for this guy. And, and in that book, he walked me through how to do lease options. So I bought the forms online. I did not have a money for an attorney. I'm not recommending that your listeners do it this way. I'm just sharing with you how I did it. <laughs> uh, so I got the form online. I read a book, told me how to negotiate it. And I went and started trying it. And I ended up buying a couple of houses that way. And decided to join Peter's mentorship program. And that's when it really took off. Wow. And uh, so you, you're building up this, and now you're, you're, um, you do, are, are you, this is the lease option side of it, right? So you've got yep. uh, a whole bunch of properties, a whole bunch of people paying you. Um, uh, it did, I mean, you kept going that way. And then it sounds like you, you changed gears a little bit as, as you went along. Yeah. A couple of times you, I was, I was, what I learned about all of these negotiation, I, I probably, I did, I don't know, maybe 200 lease options. And wow. while I was negotiating all of these, what I learned is I really enjoyed that. I, I, I didn't necessarily enjoy the cold calling or the knocking on doors, but I really enjoyed the time I spent inside the living room of somebody's house negotiating with them and trying to put the deal together. And what I learned through that process is any real estate transaction, every real estate transaction, the way you negotiate it and make your offer, um, all re depends on how you're going to finance the deal. What's your capital stack look like? What's your debt look like? How are you going to negotiate the lease option or other type of owner carry terms? And so I just naturally migrated over to the financing side of this business. I became a mortgage broker, which was terrible. Uh, I had zero control. I was approving people for loans one day. Guidelines were changed and they were no longer approved the next day. Um, so that got to be uh, taxing, to say the least. And this was in 2006. Um, so Ooh, I started, gosh. I learned to start raising private money. I can get control. Of, and I got an, another mentor, which has been big for my career. And she showed me how to bring in private capital and loan it out to other investors and charge fees for that. So I started do, doing that in 2006. And then we all know what happened in 2008. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say that uh, being in the mortgage business altogether would have been really rough at that time. But uh, but you 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 got on the other side. And so how did how did that work with you? Oh, it was great. So I, I, I had raised 
actually, I thought it was a significant amount of money at the time. It was around a million dollars I had raised for Susan was her name. Her and I worked closely together. I brought in almost all of the capital we were loaning out. I was loaning all the money out. She was focused in other areas. Is that Susan Lassiter by any chance? Do you know her? Yeah, she's been on the show a number of times. Yeah, so she was my one of my early, early mentors. She's great. She is great. Yeah, so she taught me. um, She taught me this business, so I owe a lot to her. But as 2008 came, she's she's definitely an educator, and she's fantastic at it. She's not as much a deal person. She didn't like the in the trenches, and especially during that time with all the turmoil. Um, so we decided to separate, or she decided to separate. She wanted to close down her shop and, and focus on the education side, and I wanted to do deals, and so that's why we separated. And I started Pine. Wow! And and so tell me what that uh, the shop looked like, and it, also in the with the the back background of you know all these other mortgage companies just collapsing, and and uh, you know not to mention the. Yeah, you know, the investment firms and other things that just followed their followed suit. Um, um, how, who were you lending to? What, what were you, you know, what were your typical type of uh, loans and uh, and deals? Yeah, so we were doing pretty much all fix and flip loans. So these are for people, mom and pop shops that are fixing and flipping houses. We would do high leverage loans, so up to a hundred percent of the costs, as long as we're at a conservative loan to value on the exit. So 70% of the completed value, that was basically the product. Back then we were charging four points in origination and 15% interest. A point is a percent of the loan amount and a fee. So I think about a hundred thousand dollar loan, it'd be 4,000 bucks in fees plus 15% on the interest. Now, the hard money industry has changed significantly since 2008. So we're not getting anywhere near that now. Uh, but that, yeah, that's what we were, we were charging back then. And gosh, I got to tell you, you, you want to talk about the landscape of the industry in 2008, it was complete and utter chaos. Yeah. And I could tell you what added to that and what it was so stressful and was so difficult for me to get Pine Financial off the ground was regulation, which Susan didn't know. I didn't know. Neither one of us knew. But to bring in private capital and lend out that money on an individual loan basis, you needed to have a securities license to do that. And I was told that. I asked Susan. She didn't believe it. So what did I do? I called the state regulators and I asked them, "Is do you, do you need a license to do this type of business? And they asked me, are you doing that type of business? And of course, the answer was yes. And I got a very fast invitation into their office where I was quickly put under investigation <laughs> and oh man, all at the very beginning of when I was trying to get this started. So I had to go through a really stressful and complicated investigation with the state came out of that just fine. They actually said, you're doing more, you're doing more disclosures and you're operating at a really high level, more disclosures than the state would even require. So I was able to study and test and get my license. So it all worked out fine, but that's how it all got going. Wow. And um, this, um, uh, yeah, I mean, what were the typical terms for or the length of those uh, those loans for the most part? Yeah, so we, we were doing six months and some of our competitors were as well. So I tried to, to separate myself from the competition and I did a nine month loan. So four and 15 for nine months. Gotcha. Now, um, OK, so you have you've been 
in the same business uh, since that time, since uh, 2007, eight, you know, that, that uh, to today. Yeah. Yep. I, I do my own investing on the side, but that's definitely mm-hmm. a side, almost hobby. I love mm-hmm. it so much. I can't stop. Uh, mm-hmm. But my focus is absolutely on Pine Financial. Gotcha. And uh, how how have things changed over the years? I mean, obviously, there's a very different economy today. Um, and uh, uh, I don't know if you see, you know, resemblances to, <laughs> to how things were back then. Um, but I, I would be curious to see how, how lending has changed in that time period. Well, there's an industry now. Back then, it was, there was no industry. People mm-hmm. didn't even know what the heck private lending was. Um, now they have like, national entities that try to regulate it and there's conferences several times of year i just went to a conference for uh the american association of private lenders and there's like 600 people there either in the business actively or trying to get in so the biggest change is the there's an industry with that comes two things one institutional investors so it's not all privately raised capital anymore you have Wall Street getting into the business. And two, with more people loaning money, um, it drives prices down. There's more competition. It's more crowded. Um, so we've had to we've had to keep up on the pricing side of things. We've had to go out and look for institutional investors. But we've raised a ton of money. We've raised well over $100 million, um, in our multiple mortgage funds. So we're still kind of old school. Um, you talked about that when we got on the Skype call, this little mm-hmm. little old school. We feel the same way. I do a lot of things like we did when we got started. Oh, wow. And uh, you mentioned back then it was at 15%. Um, um, what, what, are, what are rates today? Yeah, right now we're at two points in, in origination, so half of what we used to get, and we're at 12% interest. Gotcha. And are you doing... Uh, is it strictly hard money or are you, are you do you have uh, other products that, uh, you know, maybe longer term products uh, as well? You know, a lot of the competitors are getting into some of that longer term stuff. We're 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 deciding to stay you know hyper focused on the short term. So we'll do some bridge uh, commercial bridge loans, which will go up to 18 months. But everything we do is value add short term. Gotcha. Gotcha. And um you know, with the things going on with Fannie and Freddie too, or right now, um, uh, are you finding a, a lot of activity in the bridge loan area, especially on the commercial side? Oh, absolutely. It's been like that forever, though. There, see, when you go into the commercial space, a lot of banks won't finance commercial properties unless they're stabilized, meaning they're producing enough income to pay for the loan. Um, the, the property is more important to a bank than the, even the individual guarantor. So if it's not producing enough income, you won't get the you won't get the loan. So we really focus on that niche of, you know, this real estate asset needs to be repositioned to produce income. So maybe it's an apartment building that just is totally vacant, or maybe it's a hotel that needs to be converted, or uh, we do a lot of warehouse conversions to small bay or storage. So if there's some some way that you could reposition and produce income, um, there's a high demand for that. Are there uh, generally longer term, uh, I would think, especially if you're doing, you know, some major renovation on an apartment or a, a industrial property, something like that? Yeah, it's interesting. There's two reasons for this. But one is because it takes a long, long time to get through your capital improvements. Um, so we're looking at 18 months typically. Um, but banks require title seasoning before they'll refinance you out. Um, now, if you go to the Fannie and Freddie route, they don't have any title seasoning. So I could buy a single family home 
fix it up, get it, uh, get it reappraised at a new improved higher value. And Fannie Mae will look at the new improved value and will ignore what I paid for it. That's not mm. reality on the commercial side. The banks really do want to see 12 months of seasoning before they'll use a new appraised value. So we need to we need to season the property for 12 months anyways. So it works out perfect. They need to season it 12 months and we need to do some CapEx and then we can get the refinance done. That's great. Well, this, um, you know, it sounds like you've got just a winner here. You've obviously stuck with it for a long time, um, but uh, I'm sure you've encountered your your mistakes and, and challenges there that you've learned from. Um, what would you say, you know, you could you could even go to as an investor as well as uh, in the uh, in the hard money business. What uh, what are some of those challenges that you had to deal with? Yeah, interesting. My my biggest mistake as a private money lender was calling the regulator <laughs> to ask for advice. <laughs> Absolutely don't do that. Call an attorney, someone who's actually going to be on your side. That, that would have been a much smarter move for me. Um, on the investing side, gosh, I've made so many mistakes, Bill. It's hard for me to even pick one. I, I know that foreclosure story that I shared was a pretty big one that, that, that impacted me um, a lot. My very first tenant, I did not screen. So I had my very first rental property, my very first tenant, and my very first eviction. Um, so that, that was pretty bad. But I think the biggest mistake I've made was setting my goals incorrectly. And I, I was so concerned with that one property a month. I wanted to look cool at the real estate investment clubs. I wanted people to look up to me and all of that stuff was important. And so I it's very easy to look like you're successful when you're doing a high number or high volume, but they could be terrible deals, right? So my goal was one house a month and by God, I was going to hit that goal, even if I had to buy deals that were marginal. And I did that leading up to the biggest crash in housing history. Um, so I really did take a bath there and I learned the very important lesson that I don't really care what people think anymore. Um, I'm, my goals are all around what's important for me and my family and my values and, and you know, what I could do for you know, other people. Right. Now, are, are, um, are you still doing lease options or are you uh, doing more traditional long-term rentals? Uh, what, uh, in your personal portfolio, what, uh, what are you focusing on? Yeah, so I've graduated from the single family lease option stuff. I think that's fantastic. And I could have been very happy just staying in that arena, but it, it does somewhat put a cap on you. It's hard to scale that business. Um, very, very profitable, but it's just hard to scale. So I, I don't do that much anymore. I'm really looking for, on the investing side, much larger projects. So let me give you an example. We just purchased a 30,000 foot uh, warehouse in Minneapolis. I got a lot of connections in Minneapolis because we do business out there. And our, we have a single tenant, it's a good year. So now we're trying to work with them to renew their lease. We got a fantastic deal on this because their lease is expiring. So oh, that would be great. one example, but we, I really like much larger projects, you know, seven-ish figures on an exit or, I mean, sound, I, I'm trying to be humble here, but I just need it, I need it to be large enough for me to be interested in it. Are you syndicating on any of these deals? Uh, I've done one syndication, developed an 80-acre parcel in Colorado, um, 150 houses. There's like 200 attached houses, and then a little small piece of it was commercial. What I learned from that process is it's very challenging when you have investors involved in a single-purpose entity and the, and the project doesn't go exactly as planned. 
Um, so I'm deciding not to syndicate anymore. I'm going to do, I'd rather do everything on my own or maybe one or two very close partners that I have relationships with. Right. And, you know, you mentioned sort of mistakes, uh, what, what, sort of on the other side, what, uh, what things did you do well in the beginning that you have, uh, has become an integral part of your organization? Yeah, now two, 2008 really humbled me. So I've gotten over this. Some people would say this is good. Some people th- say it was bad, but I'll tell you what, Bill, I wouldn't be where I am without it. And that's the ready, fire, aim mentality. Mm. If I wasn't so willing to take action, even if I knew I might miss, then I wouldn't be where I am today. So I think being able to just face a fear, understand that there's going to be mistakes and continue to move forward. That's great. That's great. I'm hearing more and more of that uh, from people that, uh, you know, the one of the biggest mistakes a lot of people say is the, you know, not pushing the button, you know, not not taking that step. And, um, you know, it just being too concerned with the the risk and um and and then later on realizing oh gee you know if i would have done that if i would have could have should have you know (laughs) exactly yeah that's interesting um well you know our audience are folks that are uh, 50 years of age or older um they're people that are approaching retirement or they're in retirement already and they're looking at real estate investing and associated industries there um, as a means to be able to not only generate cash flow, but to, um, you know, grow their nest eggs as well. And, and, and now with, you know, with inflationary pressures, recession, all these things happening, you know, there, there's more concern than ever in, in, in being able to sustain, you know, for the, the entire lifetime. What, uh, what suggestions or advice would you have for those folks in terms of uh, how, what you know and, and what you're familiar with uh, maybe uh, would be a great way to be able to help them in those in those goals of theirs. Yeah, we, I mean, we could talk about this for a while. I, I love the fact that you're doing this podcast, Bill, because this is helping them. There's got we got to get our mind and our, our I guess our mind out of Wall Street constantly because look what happens on Wall Street: twenty five percent loss in less than a year. Now it will go back up, and I understand that, but. You don't see that kind of fluctuation in, in Main Street investments. So what you're doing and helping people understand the real estate industry and different ways that they could profit in it, um, getting onto Main Street, I think, is super important, at least for if, for diversification, if nothing else. Uh, but some ideas, uh, I mean, it's it, one thing it's hard to answer is each individual situation is going to be different. So 50 is not that old. They could absolutely be buying fix and flips or lease options or doing something like that if they want to grind a little bit and put in some effort and make a tremendous amount of money. If they're looking for more passive income, maybe maybe it's a turnkey rental or maybe it's private lending, like a little bit of what we talked about today. What I will say with the private lending side, although I believe if it's done right, is the most safe you could be. As a lien holder, you get paid first. So if there's a problem with your borrower, you will get your money back before they do. I think that puts us in a really comfortable position, especially if we're at a low loan to value. So if there's any fluctuation in the market, but you can, you have to do it right. So to share a real quick story, I'm sure you talk about self-directed IRAs in your podcast, Bill. Uh-huh. We have we had a we have a lot of self-directed IRA investors, and there's this one individual. She invested her entire self-directed IRA into a private money note. And she went into a junior position behind us. She called us when it was way too late to help her. And she ended up losing her entire account 
because she went into a junior position lean without the proper understanding that she needs to be able to take out the first. If she has to foreclose, she would have had to pay us off in order to get the property. She didn't understand that. Um, You know, a lot of the national gurus tell you, well, gap fund this, get as much money as you can from your hard money lender and go get private debt to cover the gap. Well, if your hard money lender is going to stop you at a certain point, that's probably a good place to stop. The more you put debt on it, the more risk you're taking. And then those junior lien holders are at a tremendous amount of risk. So that's one example, but there's a ton of different mistakes I see private lenders make. Um, So I would say absolutely look at this business. It's passive and it can be very, very safe, but be careful. Now, does your company have vehicles for investors, um, funds or um, ways where they could also generate passive income? Yeah, we, we do have a public fund, which I'm really excited about. Um, so we could, we can accept accredited and non-accredited investors. There's no limitations on either one. Um, we do some individual note investing too. So if we will sell off individual notes to free up some cash. So there's an opportunity there. Um, and, and, you know, when you're working with a broker or a company like us that's, that underwrites and services loans, now you're working with someone who understands what they're doing and they can help you stay safe. That's great. That's great. Wow. Well, uh, it sounds like uh, you have uh, you really created a, a real nice uh, company and uh, culture there, it sounds like. Uh, um, what, what are you excited about in the future for your company? Yeah, I touched on it a little bit. It's that public fund. So we, you know, everything I've done to this point is just through been been through private offerings. So I have to I have to have the securities license. I have to offer people inside my network these opportunities. I have to limitations on accredited investors versus non-accredited investors. And then I created a public fund um, for the states of Minnesota and Colorado um, with an attorney that forgot to tell me one piece of information that was vital. And that was Colorado, you don't need a, uh, audited financials. Minnesota, you need fully audited financials. And I was not getting fully audited financials. So mm. we went out of compliance. So I and hired a different attorney and was like, fix this. And they said, well, we have to start a new, uh, a new fund, get everybody moved over, and then we'll stay compliant. Well, since I needed audited financials anyways, I went the full blown, it's called a tier two reg A, and now I could raise money in all 50 states, um, really high cap on the, on the amount I could raise. And I could advertise, I could promise a return, I could do all kinds of things that I was never able to do before. Uh, and it's fully approved by the SEC, so that's really exciting. God, that's great. And what what, um, what requirements would uh, would be related to, you know, that fund in terms of, you know, minimum investment amount, uh, what's the yield and, you know, is it paid quarterly, monthly? How, how does, how would that work? Yeah. So it's really simple. The, the business is simple. We've talked about that uh, here today. The minimum is only $10,000. We lowered it way, way down because I'm, I know people are hurting right now from the stock market and the bond market and crypto. And if we could get some diversification into their portfolio, I think it would help. So we decided to lower our minimum all the way down to 10,000. That's great. Wow. It pays a flat 8% and it pays out every single month. Investors can either reinvest the money so it'll grow like a savings account. Um, that's pretty cool because they have uh, compound interest. Was it Ben Franklin said that's the eighth wonder of the world? <laughs> right. Um, or you can take your money and do a direct deposit every month if you're looking for cash flow or income. And, and it's secured by real estate, right? I mean, 
Yep, all of the loans we make are secured by real estate. Um, we get full valuations. You, typically, it's a full appraisal. Sometimes we do BPOs if it's a pretty safe loan. That's great. That's great. That sounds like a sounds like a great, and and, and you accept accredited and not accredited uh, investors too. That's yeah. uh, that's really a, that's a great product because um, I, I get asked all the time, and uh, you know it's a it. It's been tough for you know some unaccredited folks to be able to to get into the the good deals, and uh, that sounds like a, sounds like a good one. Wow. Um, uh, also, you know, I, I just wanted to you know touch on this too. Is um, what um, just looking at the economy in general right now? I, I know that you've been through the you know a couple of recessions there already. Um, what what do you see in today's economy, and uh, what uh, how how would you advise people in terms of their investments to 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 look ahead um, in, in dealing with that? Yeah, this is a topic that comes up every single day. I'm sure it does for you too, Bill. Um, I I compared this this recession, which I believe we are in a recession. I I compared this to the 2008 crash. And why I don't think it's the same and why I feel it's going to, at least in real estate, it's going to be a pretty soft landing or at least much softer than what we've seen before. And I got some hate mail. People did not agree with me at all. And they said, you're looking at the wrong recession. It's not 2008 that's comparable. 2008, housing created the recession. This recession is created by the government that we think may affect housing. So it's very different. So they these people were telling me, you're looking at the wrong recession. Go to 2000 or go to 1990, mm-hmm. what came out of the savings and loan. So I studied that recession and put out another video and I wrote a whole report on comparing 90 to, to today too. So I, I feel like neither one of them are comparable, quite honestly. Right now we have the most equity we've ever had in properties. We have fixed rate loans instead of adjustable rate loans. Uh, we have record credit scores, which is a pretty good indication of quality of loan and quality of borrower. And we're still at super low inventory. So nothing shows me, nothing I've seen other than affordability maybe, that could be an argument, really tells me we're gonna see a housing crash or a wave of foreclosures or any of that. Um, so I'm I'm not as worried in housing as I am in maybe stock market continuing to fall. Um, so my advice, I know that was way more than you asked me, but what you asked me was what my advice would be. It's hard to no, give advice. That's a great on, answer. It is hard to give advice because we don't have a crystal ball. Sure. But I will say that I feel very much more comfortable in real estate because it moves slower and for the reasons I've just said. But I wouldn't put all my eggs in real estate either. I do believe diversification is how you get through a recession like this. That's great. That's great advice. Um, uh, also, too, I, I, that uh, report that you've done comparing um, the 2000, uh, or 1990 to, to the, uh, the 2008, uh, is that something that's public that people can access? Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, you know what I could do? I have another report for to help people stay safe if they want to lend their money to other people. I just hate to see. I really oh, hate that, to get that. That sounds great. Yeah. I hate that story of the $80,000 loss. I mean, that really hurts me. So I wrote that report. You can get that at thepinereport.com. And I'll tell you what, Bill, for you, I'll, uh, I'll upload on that, that same domain. I'll upload this, uh, this comparison from 90 to two today. So the both reports will be up there. That's great. Yeah. Cause I, I did want to go on a little bit more into, you know, 
people that want to do it on their own and uh, some of the risks involved. But it uh, sounds like this this report will probably be able to give a lot more detail than we would have had time for here. So um, that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, uh, we're uh, getting near the end of our interview here, and uh, we have a segment called Wrap It Up, where I ask you a series of quick questions, kind of like a lightning round on uh, uh, resources that uh, you have used and have been valuable for you as a real estate guy and uh, lender. So if you're ready, um, we'll go ahead and uh, wrap it up. Let's do it. All right. Uh, Favorite real estate book? So my favorite real estate book has to be the Multiple Streams of Income uh, by, and I, there's a couple of them out there with that same title, but it's multiple streams of income, buying properties with no money down, something like that by Peter Conti. The reason oh, I said yes. that is because it's the one that really got me going. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, how about uh, just a favorite general business book? You know, it's hard to not say traction. I'm actually rereading that for the That's third time right book. now. <laughs> great but, uh, book. I think the e-myth honestly might even be better. I, I really got a lot out of the e-myth. Mm-hmm. That's excellent. Yeah, excellent book too. Um, how about a, a, a website that you use just all the time that's been invaluable for your business? Uh, well, the, gosh, I, my CRM is where I'm at all the time, but I like Redfin a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I like setting up searches and saving those searches and getting email deals. I bought several properties that way. Um, and for a really fast search on valuation, I use it, but I want to warn you that it is an uh, automated valuation model and it's not always accurate. Right. But I, I, I use, I do use Redfin. Oh, that's excellent. Um, how about a favorite app on your phone that you use on a regular basis? You know, I think any app that title companies put out, um, let me, I'm getting on my phone right now to look at which one I'm using. Uh, it's called My First Am. So it's the first American app. But it gives you like marketing lists and all I can look up the owners of all the properties of anywhere in the country and how much they owe on the property and I get all my research done on that that one app. But God, any that's title great. company app do that. My first AM, is that uh when you said my first M or my Yeah, my first AM, like American. So my first AM. Okay, first got AM. it. Yep. Excellent. How about a favorite quote? Uh, this is one that my dad drilled into my head when I was growing up. <laughs> he said, whether you believe you can do it or you don't, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who was, I think that came from, wasn't that a, uh, oh gosh, I was trying to think of who originated that. But yeah, uh, I've yeah. seen it by, uh, I don't know, honestly, but I've, I have seen other people, multiple people take credit for it, but I, I don't know <laughs> right. where it actually originated from. <laughs> That's true. And our final question here, if you lost absolutely everything, all your assets, and you had to start over, and knowing what you already know, and you, all you have is a, a $1,000 in cash, what would you do to relaunch your, your business? Well, I had less than that when I started, so I'd probably do the exact same thing. I would just be much, much better at it now. Um, so the lease options, I would, I would go that direction, um, but I would do a two prong. I'd also start trying to build relationship with people who have money that are willing to invest in and with me. So I'd, I guess there'd be a two prong lease options and start building a relationship with money partners. Great, great approach. Wow. Well, uh, this has been fantastic. Uh, I, I, uh, I 
got more information than I would I expected. <laughs> Just great, great stuff, okay. Kevin. Plus the you know ancillary stuff too that we can people can you know click on and uh, download as well. So, um, how how do folks uh, find out more about you, especially those that may be interested in uh, getting involved in this fund or um, you know finding out more information about what you do? Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. I, I'll put the, those reports. It's thepinereport.com uh, for those. And then to reach me, you could find us on our website. It's www.pinefinancialgroup.com. Great, great. Wow. Well, uh, thank you so much, Kevin, for being on. But uh, we have a tradition here. You know, we're called the old dogs. And uh, so um, all of our guests get to close us out with their best old hound dog howl. And uh, so uh, are you up for that? I, I saw that on here and I was thinking, man, I bet you Bill's going to show me how to do it. So how, how do we do this? Uh, you just, it, well, you know, you just, anytime you've heard a dog howl or, you know, a lot of people use sort of the def- default wolf you sound, yeah, you know. That's that's okay too. Just give it your best shot. All right. Oh, wow. That was a good one. (laughs) That was definitely a wolf, not a hound dog. (laughs) Oh, well, gosh, I cannot thank you enough for for coming on the show today. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on. Bill, thanks so much for having me. I I hope this was valuable for for your listeners. Um, I really appreciate it. No, great stuff. And I think it's very timely. I think it's going to be perfect uh, for for people and where they're at right now. I also want to thank not only you, but all of our old dog listeners out there for joining us. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing right now, but the fact that you've taken the time to join us means a lot, and we really appreciate it. Now, please note that everything that Kevin talked about will be detailed uh, along with all the links and all that stuff in our show notes uh, at the Old Dogs website at olddogsreinetwork.com forward slash blog, and uh, you're going to look for the... uh, Uh, the episode with Kevin Amalsh. Well, that's the show for today. Remember, cash flow is king and real estate investing the means. Until next time, keep moving forward and may God bless. Thank you very much for visiting the Old Dogs REI Network. We would greatly appreciate if you would stop by iTunes and let us know what you think of the show. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. The more ratings and reviews we receive, the more visible the podcast will be to others. Thank you.